0: So what I'd like to to offer tonight is to um, pull together some of the threads of what we've been contemplating over the weekend and also to spend a little bit more time um, reflecting on the uh, third and the fourth of the four foundations of mindfulness or areas of applying our mindfulness that Jenny uh, alluded to last night. And this isn't something that's been outside the scope of our practice already, but it can be useful to maybe sort of turn the lens a bit or shine, shine the spotlight on these areas. But just to to recap and to emphasize that as we do this, the, the underlying foundation of all our mindfulness practice really is what we call the first foundation or, or the body, that uh, this is so fundamental, this process of kind of getting out of our head and getting in touch with a really embodied experience of life. Everything that we experience uh, comes to us and is mediated through the experience of our body and it's the sensitivity of being in the body that that conditions uh, the various responses of our minds. And so we've been spending a lot of time kind of getting in touch with uh, trying to feel directly what's happening here rather than thinking about it. And in the process we, we also notice how much um, life is a constant process of change and also uncontrollability. Uh, we, we don't have much choice over what arises in the body here. And then we looked last night at the second uh, foundation, second area for establishing mindfulness of feeling tone, that flavour of pleasant or unpleasant or neither one or the other or somewhere in between that arises with every single experience, internal and external, and not just our physical experiences, but even our thoughts have a a flavour of pleasant or unpleasant it's just the word the word pain i don't know what that does to you but for me it kind of automatically has a an unpleasant ring to it so the, the word joy there's a there's a pleasant ring to it and there's nothing wrong with us for having this experience of registering things in this way it's it's natural and in fact it's it's necessary it's part of the survival mechanism But when it happens beneath the radar of awareness, it it triggers all sorts of reactions that often can be not very helpful. So, it's really valuable to bring some awareness to that dimension of experience because of the way that it conditions our, our reactivity. All our reactions really are to you know, we think that we're having the reaction to a thing but it's really the reaction is to the, to the feeling tone, to the pleasantness or unpleasantness of the thing. And that those experiences of pleasant and, pleasant, pleasant and unpleasant are conditioned by our past conditioning, by our perceptions, and also by the mood that we find ourselves in at, at the moment. So a, a, an experience can seem much more unpleasant at one moment or on one day than it might do on another day. So there's this this constant feedback loop between the body, the mind, and the external stimuli that are coming at us all the time. And mindfulness asks us to bring awareness to the whole the whole of this process. So that's why I'm saying these these four areas Jenny said that they're kind of it's, it's parceled up into four but it 's really a comprehensive comprehensive um, description of our experience um, but these four areas are happening simultaneously so although we may invite you to pay attention to the body you can 't help but notice that the other stuff is happening too and vice versa you know, if we're paying attention to our thoughts there's some uh, we recognize that there's Uh, an impact of of the thoughts in the body. So mindfulness, um, it's bringing awareness to all of it. And uh, I found this little piece um, in a book by Sayadaw Utejaniya, who's a very um, contemporary, very popular um, Burmese meditation teacher. This is how he describes the difference between a meditator and a non-meditator. He says, when a car passes by, what differentiates the meditator from the non-meditator? The meditator knows both that the car passed by and knows the experience of seeing, feeling, hearing and interpreting the experience, thoughts or thinking mind and so forth. Some or all, as the case may be. The non-meditator just knows that a car passed by. So I think we're all meditators here. But for the non-meditator, the the person who hasn't considered this or or considered this approach to experience, tends to think uh, that the content of our thoughts is... Uh, the reality that's dictating our life yeah. whereas in fact when we begin to bring mindfulness to all these processes we we realize that we're co-creating the our life experience all the time. if we don't realize that then the way that we try to address problems um, kind of we, we, we tend to tackle the wrong thing so, It's a bit like the hornets being stuck in here last night, or being stuck inside the house. They're they're buzzing against the window, bashing at the window, and frantically trying to find a way out. And they don't realise that the window is open just above them. And actually, if they could, I often think, if they could just be still and listen and feel for where the current of air is coming from, they could find their way out. You know. And this is what our minds do. We're like, we're like hornets or flies trapped inside a tent. We're, we're so busy trying to pull all the gear levers with the wrong bits of experience that we don't actually um, see until we stop um, where we can actually uh, intervene and where the, where the path to some freedom and some disentanglement lies. So this is also why we spend so much time stopping coming into the body. And, and this kind of stopping takes, takes courage. You know, it's not an easy thing to do. So Thomas Merton, the um, Trappist monk, he talked about this process being courageous rest. You know, we're not just... Your friends and family might think you're just here for a nice peaceful weekend. <laughs> Little do they know. know, It takes a lot of courage and determination to stop. So part of this then is to um, stop so that we can notice how the mind and the conditions in the mind are feeding into and colouring our experience. So the third, the third foundation of mindfulness is the mind itself and this can be something that it's hard to wrap our heads around because nobody understands exactly what the mind is, where it is. Consciousness is still a great mystery to us. It's kind of like the mind is, is the water that we're, we're swimming in, awareness is the water that we're swimming in but we can know the mind or we know the mind through its activities so the mind is that which thinks that which knows, that which feels that which pays attention which, which forms intentions and we we've been watching some of its activities so the the first day i invited you to to maybe use this image of the attention being like a cow in a pasture and the cow might be sometimes you know lying down under its favorite favorite shady tree and sometimes it's kind of running around all around the pasture sometimes it's jumped right over the fence and out onto the motorway and we can know all that we can we can see that activity of the mind, that activity of paying attention. You can also notice the forming of an intention, the forming of an intention to stand up or an intention to turn around on our walking path or to go and make a cup of tea. And we can know when the mind is distracted or undistracted. We can know when the mind... um, feels composed and settled we can know when the mind feels kind of constricted around an experience and maybe kind of stiff so this uh, dullness or drowsiness that um, Jenny was naming yesterday sometimes it's talked about as being the the mind's become kind of stiff kind of got no manoeuvre room in it And, and sometimes the mind feels quite sort of light and flexible Open and spacious. So, this Ayodhya uh, Tejaniar, he said that getting to know our mind is kind of like getting to know a neighbour. The more time we spend, kind of uh, attending to it, taking an interest in it, we gradually, we gradually get to know it. And the mind is—it's always in some kind of a mood. So, uh, maybe a peaceful mood, maybe a happy mood, maybe a contented mood. But the mind—the mind always has some kind of condition. So it's as if uh, we're swimming in this water of consciousness, but the water often gets coloured by a particular. Uh, mind state or a particular like a particular die, so suppose you know we 're feeling aversive aversion being like a red dye for the sake of example, and then you know when we look through the red dye, the whole world looks red, and if we 're not a meditator, we might see the world out there and think the world is all red, but with this skill of actually bringing some awareness to the state of our mind, we can notice that there's this red dye colouring the mind. And it's really useful to see that in meditation because uh, if we don't do that, it's as if we, we sit here on our cushion thinking that we're meditating, but actually the aversion or the wanting might be meditating through us. We're kind of charging it up by letting it take the driving seat. So when we notice this and re- reflect on it, it becomes really evident that our happiness and well-being are really impacted by how we take care of our minds. And I was just reflecting, I was thinking about this, is how much time and energy we spend taking care of our bodies, how well-trained we are from, from childhood to take care of our bodies, to brush our teeth, to wash, to care with how we dress, what we feed ourselves, how we exercise, I wonder how many of us really have invested in our lifetimes, uh, even I've spent you know, eight, eight and a half years as a nun, I would still say that I've probably spent a lot more time uh, worrying about my body and my appearance over the decades of my life than I have attending to my mind, and isn't that kind of uh, somewhat sad? In terms of if we were to become really skillful in looking after our, our well being, not saying that we should neglect the body, but it just feels like there's, a, there's an imbalance here. So, in our, one of the questions we've been encouraging in the practice is to notice what's happening, but also to notice well, how am I in relationship to what's happening? And really, that question is asking us: Well, what's what's the condition of the mind right now? How's the mind right now? And and when we do that, we we're, we're divesting our energy from the from the content of the stories in the mind, and instead turning it to knowing to to. Um, Recognizing the the underlying condition of the mind, and so this actually is the the, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So the third and the fourth they kind of um, overlap somewhat. You know, the edges between these these foundations are a little blurry. But so the the third foundation is the mind itself and the condition it's in, and the fourth foundation is mental processes. So this whole domain of thoughts and feelings and mind states, and the dynamics between them. So actually the the five hindrances that uh, Jenny named yesterday, these actually are listed, they fall under this fourth foundation of, of mindfulness, of mental processes. And we can see that in any any one day, or that there, there's so many different processes that that flow through the mind. You know, how many different mind states have you experienced today? And we can tend to take them very personally, we can tend to identify with them. But I I find it really helpful to, to kind of take some of that personal sense of ownership like me being an angry person or me being greedy out of it to actually see them one one uh, monk describes the mind as being like a committee it's made up of lots of members with lots of different voices and they're all kind of arguing with one another and and clamoring for the, the microphone and what mindfulness can do is to notice this process and to notice which one has taken the mic. Actually, the job of mindfulness is really to to take keep keep the chair for itself. You know, to um, yes, to 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 uh, to keep the microphone, to keep the chair for itself. So this sense of uh, mind states as being like committee members or the mind maybe like a river with all these different currents and eddies flowing through it. And so again, this is a really useful part of our mindfulness practice, a really useful part of being here over an extended period as you can see how many different mind states come and go and how untrustworthy they can be. And to to reflect on, to notice this momentary nature of them as well, because then we don't have to become a a wise person or a foolish person. There's just a a wise moment, or a foolish moment, or a greedy moment, or a confused moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's somehow much less threatening, much much easier to be with, and much easier to kind of bring some clarity and honesty to. At least, I find that. So yesterday, as I said, Jenny named these five hindrances or veiling factors, which are the first thing that are listed under the under the um, fourth foundation of mindfulness, because they're so useful to recognise and pay attention to. These they're universal, kind of afflictive states that color the awareness in our minds so uh, the pair that are wanting or aversion, wanting an aversion and the other pair that are dullness or drowsiness versus restlessness and worry so we're really looking underneath underneath the trains of our thought for these engines that are driving them or doubt Uh, and again that's not uh, just lively curiosity but that kind of corrosive debilitating doubt like the story of the donkey who uh, had some carrots over there and some oats over there and couldn't decide whether to eat the carrots or the oats and ended up starving This this is what it's like to be locked in an experience of doubt And uh, it's really useful to to recognize that and to think, okay, well, I'm stuck in doubt. Don't know, but I will go and eat the carrots anyway. But we don't let doubt uh, monopolize the driving seat. So the invitation of mindfulness is really, we don't have to get into a fight with these states, but just to notice their presence And their absence. But tonight, I also want to talk about the more um, beneficial uh, states of mind that we're also, um, it's also really useful to bring attention to, to notice. And they're sort of beneficial um, trying to find the right word for this so often states of mind are re- referred to as wholesome or unwholesome some of you might like that some of you might find that really irritating um, helpful or unhelpful skillful or unskillful what I want to do is avoid that sense of judgment that we can in- import to all this so just you know, thinking about what way of what way of naming this or to yourself is useful and we've already been actually naming and practicing with some really beneficial states of mind, so kindness and compassion. Um, noticing how, when we really turn our attention to those and set an intention around them, we can th- they can start to grow. Also, things like gratitude and generosity. You know, we all know that. The mind feels better, the climate in the mind is happier when we in a state of gratefulness we can catch this arising spontaneously and we can also encourage gratitude as a practice so don 't know how, how many of you have done gratitude practices as part of mindfulness courses that you've done yeah, so that can be uh, I've, I've found that really useful in the past and kind of on the other side of that, the practice of generosity, how that can kind of uplift and gladden the mind. And then also there's what are referred to as the attitudinal foundations of mindfulness that some of you um, might remember, and kindness is one of them, I think. Maybe it's not on my list. I've got confused now. A, but the attitude of non-judgment is kind of—it's it's also an aspect of kindness, of curiosity, beginner's mind, trust, acceptance, patience, letting go. These are all really um, beneficial, useful qualities of mind to notice when they're present. And we talk about them as just being attributes of mindfulness and how to, how to practice mindfulness. But actually, they're really, they're really beneficial qualities to be developing in their, in their own right. So they're skillful mental states to, to develop in their own right. So when you do the body scan and there's a moment of mindfulness... We're actually developing these qualities, even though we think that what we're doing is just, you know, trying to be aware of the big toe and not have a reaction around the ludicrousness of being asked to do this and so on. Actually, we're in the process, we're developing some really beneficial qualities of mind and so as the as the mind gets more settled, it can notice not only you know the sensations in our foot but it can also know the presence and the absence of these qualities in the observing mind and when I say that, you know maybe maybe it sounds like an awful lot to be doing, and on the other hand, I've been saying inviting you to do this practice of doing nothing at all, you know. So it's, there's a kind of paradox here of, of um, this isn't about becoming hypervigilant. In fact, the more relaxed we are, the more easy it is to notice what's happening. And awareness notices things without a whole lot of effort from us. So this is, it's, so this is, this is a, an invitation to a very uh, relaxed kind of awareness here. As we get used to looking out for these qualities, we can also we can also notice what conditions they're arising and their disappearance so this is the, the one of the differences between knowing the mind and knowing mental processes in knowing mental processes we come to see well what what conditions the Uh, increase and the growing of aversion in a certain situation and what causes the aversion to kind of deflate what causes uh, a sense of interest to increase what causes the interest to, to disappear and boredom to set in and we're just learning that through, not through theoretical thinking about it but through just watching our own experience directly And so the, the word, that the metaphor that we often use for this process is cultivation. You've probably heard us, you know, talking about cultivating this, that and the other the last couple of days. And, and I really like this because it, the, this sense of the, the process being somewhat like working the land or working a garden, in that we're working with natural processes and conditions that operate according to natural laws in their own time. So you can't force something to grow uh, faster than it's going to do, but we can provide the conditions in which certain qualities will manifest in the mind and certain qualities will diminish. And then it's a question of just uh, patiently waiting for nature to uh, take its course. So I just want to name an, an, another list that's there in the, in the um, Fourth Foundation that balances these five uh, hindrances or veiling factors that Jenny spoke about. And as we said that they're called veiling factors because they obstruct or they hinder our our ability to see clearly. Like They're, they're like the dye in the water or mud that's obscuring the water and we can't then see clearly what's really for our own benefit or what's really for the benefit of a situation or other people but there's also given equal weight in this in this Buddhist psychological framework is another set of qualities which are traditionally called awakening factors they're they're really the qualities that actually clarify clarify the water and reveal what's there and, and lead to a process not of entanglement but to disentanglement. And it's, I think it's interesting to name them because unlike the things that I've named so far, like kindness and compassion and gratitude, things they're not things that we tend to think of as virtues in a traditional sense. But they're really sort of meditative qualities of the mind. And so it won't surprise you to know that the first one of them is mindfulness. Uh, that this is, this is regarded as a, as a wholesome, clarifying quality of mind. So just this uh, ability, this uh, ability to stay present, to be aware of what's happening as it's happening and then the second quality is investigation so we've, we, we've named this already as, as curiosity but it, it's curiosity that, that brings wisdom to bear so it's investigating things applying all, all the wisdom, all the understanding that we have Um, process of wise reflection so what is this experience that I'm having right now and then the third one is energy and maybe uh, the way that I see this is this sense of willingness to stay with an experience as it's happening so Jenny. Uh, shared with us yesterday, Christina Feldman's definition of mindfulness as the the willingness and the capacity to be equally near all events and experiences uh, with kindness, curiosity, and discernment. And to me, the 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 willingness part of that really points to this quality of energy. Maybe. Also, a sense of persistence or courage. So, it doesn't there doesn't have to be a lot of physical energy in the body for the mind to be able to do that? You know, we can be willing to be with an experience of tiredness, willing to be with discomfort. And what does what does that do? So, these 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 qualities actually, and you you just. Have to test this out in your own experience, but they kind of give rise to one another. They unfold into one another. So when we we're mindful of something, we start to bring attention to it, and some uh, investigation curiosity around it tends to arise naturally. And when we start to investigate something, it brings it brings a certain amount of energy. This, this engagement this willingness to, to be with it for the time being while I, I want to investigate this a bit more and there's persistence there and there's also this quality of courage and then the fourth quality interestingly is, is it's translated as rapture and so these are, these are mental qualities but some of them have, a, have a, also a resonance in the body and again, Ute Jania, who I read the piece from about meditation, he he calls this being like rapt interest. So it's the sort of joy that arises in the mind from being really interested in something. And I, you've probably experienced that sometimes when you get really sort of enthused or fascinated by something. Or I quite I often notice if I'm listening to something on the radio or. On television, and somebody's talking about something that they find really interesting, and it may be something that's absolutely have, hitherto of have no interest to me. But there's something about the enthusiasm of somebody who's really, really excited by something that's kind of catching. And there's there, this can also happen in our own minds as we really kind of um, really bring our really bring our interest and our. Um, our curiosity to something that actually that process in itself gives rise to a kind of joy, a joyful engagement. And then out of this sense of of joy and interest, there's a happiness that comes with it. Happiness has a calming effect on the mind. so happiness um, and this this is mapped out a lot in in different um different frameworks within these traditional teachings. Happiness gives rise to tranquility. The, the happy mind starts to calm down. So this is again something, you know, don't, don't, take, this, don't take this for granted. You can, you can check it out in your, in your own experience. And I guess I'm not talking about you know as happiness leading to calm and then to the next quality which is um, composure or concentration, steadiness or collectedness of mind. I'm not talking about the sort of happiness like that you you hear that your son or daughter got lots of A stars in their GCSEs and there's this you know huge excitement or whatever, but more the the, the kind of happiness that Maybe you experience sitting out there in the early morning with a cup of tea, and it's nothing that you have to do, and you're just really appreciating the, the beauty of the early morning. And when the mind is in that happy in that sort of way, have you noticed how it starts to, it starts to settle and becomes more aware and that the whole, the whole it just feels like the mind is more alive to all of its experience. So that's the, this is the kind of movement from happiness to calm that I'm talking about. And then this leads to the final quality which is something that we've also mentioned is equanimity. This, and this again is implicit in the sense of the ability to be equally near all our experiences. So equanimity isn't a distancing or an indifference but it's, a, it's a, an ability to be with things with a sense of perspective that we're not unseated by them, and really uh, equanimity. You know, it's something that flowers gradually as wisdom develops, and it's not something we can can turn the tap onto. But it is something that we can start to orient to. Right? All of these seven qualities of mindfulness. Uh, investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration or composure, and equanimity. I mean, we may have little whiffs and slivers of them, and this is also why I'm naming them, is so that we don't overlook the pieces of them that arise. So it can be interesting if you ask people to name. These qualities as they're being experienced, people we're very we're very quick to say, oh, I don't I don't have any mindfulness, I don't have any mindfulness. We discount the ten percent mindful that's there. We just notice the ninety percent that the mind feels distracted and so forth. Or similarly with any of the other qualities, we we don't discredit uh, even a little bit of the presence of these qualities. Because once we recognise it, and once we send some attention to it, this is this is how these qualities grow, and this is also why I'm naming them. And actually, I just I know that some of you, you know, this practice of doing nothing sparked some interest, and I was noticing that in my own mind. And so, you know, for example, if we we the side we're going to sit and explore the practice of what's it like to sit and do absolutely nothing and as I did that I noticed that I became quite alert in the present moment like mindfulness was there and there's some curiosity because I'm not really sure that I know what it means to do nothing this is interesting and you can notice how that's then somewhat energizing in the mind this quality of energy starts to emerge and actually I'm really enjoying this investigation
1: Ah.
0: and then out of the enjoyment then the mind starts to steady it's it's, it's easy to stay present with something when when there's enjoyment in the mind so it maybe didn't have that effect on you but there maybe have been some other moments in practice where actually something caught you, or just when you drop in this question, what's happening now? And if the mind's in a space where it really picks it up and there's interest, you can just um, sense how these qualities start to unfold. So even when there's something difficult happening, like you notice that one of these... One of these hindrances, one of these difficult qualities in the mind. There's there's a kind of turning point in the whole experience once mindfulness gets involved, once we start to notice this, because then we are actually we we can flick the switch and start to seed some of these other qualities. So it's almost like there's the, they start taking up more of the space in the mind and and the difficult. Uh, the afflictive qualities will start to um, get displaced. So, there's just to, to name, and this is the last thing I'll say, is uh, a practice that I find really helpful um, when we do find that we're struggling with difficult qualities of the mind that can help with, with turning the switch in this way, with seeding um, these more beneficial meditative qualities. And there's an acronym for this practice that some of you might have heard of, RAIN, R-A-I-N. A A friend of mine has turned it into GRAIN, which I think is quite useful. So when we notice that we're upset in some way or we've fallen into a pattern of reactivity, the first thing, the G, stands for grounding. We can just stop stop, recognize that this is happening, and stop. And as we've been practicing in the last couple of days, really find our ground, uh, sensing the feet touching the earth, sensing bottom on the seat, sensing the breath. The way that we get skilled at using the body to really just pause and come into presence. And sometimes also that grounding can be, you know, maybe coming into the body feels like not necessarily the most safe and reassuring place to be. So also grounding can be orienting ourselves to our surroundings, opening the eyes, taking in where we are, finding ourselves in the space. It doesn't have to be a coming internal if that doesn't feel, uh, that doesn't feel so safe and steadying. So we ground ourselves. And then the R is, uh, stands for recognising. So recognising that there's a, a troublesome state of mind that's overtaken things. So recognising that the, the clear water of the mind is coloured by something. And seeing if we can identify what that is. Sometimes we can identify it easily, sometimes it's a bit more nebulous. But as best we can, recognizing that some difficult mental quality is present, recognizing that there's aversion here, recognizing that there's a lot of wanting or that there's doubt has taken over. And then the A is for allowing. So rather than firing another arrow, to use this arrow metaphor, rather than firing the arrow of aversion, I've got to get rid of this, I've got to fix it. We just let it be at least for now, just allow it to be there, because then we 're able to move to the next one, the I, which is investigate yeah. so what what is this experience of doubt? Yeah. do I notice uh, how it 's manifesting in the body yeah. so when i'm when i 'm in a space of doubt there 's a kind of freezing up that happens, maybe or some some kind of, um, it's also an element of fearfulness that comes into that. So, freezing up, maybe even a slight sweating. Or something. And what are the stories, investigating, what are, what are the stories that I'm telling myself that is feeding this? Or, um, yeah, what are, what are the stories that are keeping it in place? Are they? What happens when I believe these stories? What happens if I just would uh, bracket these stories or, or let them go, acknowledge that I don't know that they're true or not? How did this doubt kick off? Maybe something triggered it. What happens if I put my attention somewhere else? So just uh, investigating not, not in the... Th- not in the sense of over-analyzing it, but investigating what's my experience around it, and how's that triggering other experience. And then the N, the last one, is for for non-identification or um, to not taking not taking it personally, recognizing it as a process in nature, and in in doing that, returning to this more sense of balanced, open awareness. So I think Tara bragg calls the N uh, natural awareness, returning to natural awareness. But really recognising that this is, this is just uh, a mind state passing through. So this, this acronym, G-R-A-I-N, grounding, recognising, allowing, investigating, not taking it personally. This can be a really helpful thing to do uh, when we find ourselves grappling with these mind states. And it's a way of turning, starting turning towards these more beneficial, um, feeding these beneficial uh, qualities of mind. I think that's all i'm going to say about these uh, for this evening so let's just pause for a moment let that settle